Today is January 22nd. It is 2014. Our message is called Zaphanath Panea. Zaphanath Panea. And uh, I hope we have a good time with each other tonight. I already felt the presence of the Lord, and that's a good thing. I enjoyed taking communion with you. That's always a good thing. Where we go from here is entirely up to the Holy Ghost and our obedience. Amen? Amen. Why don't we do this? Let's go to Genesis 41. That's as good a place to start as any. Say there when you're there. Let me know you're there. See what we can do with this tonight. In Genesis 41, let us start together in verse hmm, 33. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of the good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Come on, what made the difference in Joseph's life? The Spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot at his second in command and men shouted before him, Prepare the way, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath Paneah. Oh my goodness, we go on to find out he's about 30 years old when this happened. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. You don't have to be well learned. If you've heard the story of Joseph, the prince of Egypt, it's hard not to see Jesus Christ in the story. All judgment in Egypt was entrusted to Joseph. The only thing that separated Joseph from Pharaoh was the literal throne of God. But he had the signet ring of Pharaoh. And if he said it, it was as if Pharaoh said it. There was not a dime's difference between the two. You following me so far? Pharaoh gave him a name. It's a name not found anywhere else in Egyptian culture. If you look, some Bible dictionaries can't define it. 
Some define it as the sustainer of the land. Others say it must have been an obscure Egyptian title. But the further you look into its etymology, it seems to be the very best way available to them to say, the giver of life and savior of all men. Now, friends, who is the giver of life and savior of all men? Jesus, the living Christ. Now, when Pharaoh said this, did that mean that all of Egypt immediately began to obey Joseph? Can't you imagine that some of them said, wait a minute, who is this Hebrew? Doesn't he come from humble origins? Didn't we hear about him and Potiphar's wife? Didn't we hear about him and some... I mean, even his own brothers were said to have sold him out. Can't you imagine the whispering began? But once he was appointed, he held the office. It was his kingdom. Keep your finger here and turn with me to Hebrews 2. See there when you're there. I'm going to wait on all of you. Me and Tim LaHaye not leaving any behind. In Hebrews 2, verse 6. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. That's good news, isn't it? This next word's a tough one. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. Jesus Christ is declared Lord of lords and King of kings. No serious Christian would doubt it. And yet you don't see him as the Lord of all and you don't see him as the king of every king. We've given him a title or rather recognized a title that his father has given him that he earned. But it's not yet rung out through the whole world. It's time to bring our brothers into the fold. If it doesn't begin in Egypt with Joseph being the Pharaoh's chosen man, If Egypt is not the first to recognize him, do you really think the foreign dignitaries will? If Egyptian officials look with scorn upon Joseph, if they won't obey him, do you really think that foreigners will come cringing to him? But when Egypt receives Joseph, it paves the way for the rest of the world to receive Joseph. We all want revival. We all want the... Lost of the world to be saved, but it starts somewhere. It starts when Jesus really is King of all and Lord of all, starting in our own hearts, starting in our own lives. In this way, if we look at the 47th chapter of Genesis, where we're going, we can see how Joseph became Lord of all, King of all. And so even the nations came to bow down before him. But it started With Egypt. I say Jesus Christ's lordship starts first and foremost here 
and now. It starts in my heart. And to the level that I obey him, I will inspire others to come and bow before him. But if I can't obey him, how can they hear my word that he's Lord and King? Are you tracking with me, church? You're awful quiet. I see a lot of foreheads pointed at the ground. I didn't give you hymnals to throw at me. You're going to be okay? Look at your pastor and say, we're going to be okay. Go to Genesis 47. Let's get in the, into the dirt. In Genesis 47, did the whole world come to Joseph during the good years? No. The whole world did not come to Joseph during the years of plenty. So much for the prosperity gospel. The whole world will not see God's blessing upon your life and say, oh, you know what? I need to go receive Jesus. And if they do receive Jesus that way, it's a false Jesus. It's a get-rich-quick Jesus. It's a prosperity pimp rather than the Lord of glory. But trouble, trouble requires a Savior. Trouble requires a deliverer. Church, if we could get it down in our spirit that the Lord really, really, really wants to save us, that he's in the business of delivering us, that what moves his heart is a people that recognizes their true condition so that he can make you victors through his strength. But if you're a victor without him, then where is his glory? Oh, my goodness. So during the seven years of plenty... None of the nations came to cringe before him. In fact, probably many of his own people whispered as he walked by. They probably said all the things you can imagine. Isn't this guy's people, those shepherds over in Goshen? They stink when they walk by. They probably cursed him as being entirely too common until, of course, they needed a savior. In the 13th verse, we see the beginning of their need, and I would submit to you by the Spirit of God tonight, it's the beginning of our need. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Does that sound like it's tough? The entire region, you can't go to Walmart. You can't go to Aldi's for a sale on milk. You ought to live with Judah Stevens and Al Lawkin. I'm going to have to write to my friends in Africa and ask them to send a cow we bought for them over here. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and in Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Oh, is it any surprise, friends? that it's easier to come to Jesus when all of our prodigal resources have been spent. 
Is it any surprise that it's easier to come and recognize the only monarch with true provision after we've run out of our own armed strength? Say, oh, well, that gospel's just for those who are down and out. Well, be patient. He'll get you there too. For these people, they were not interested in Joseph until they needed to be saved. And they were willing to come and put what had been all of their idolatrous hope at his feet in exchange for what only he could give. How did you come to know our king? Well, pastor, I was taught the 14 points of excellency and doctrine. If you never got so desperate, you would give all you had to obtain the pearl of great price. You do not have the pearl. These people are beginning to get a glimpse of what it is to follow Jesus. We're learning from Joseph's example as Zephanoth Paneah under what conditions it is that we find the Lordship of Christ. Did he not say the gospel is for the poor? Did he not announce in advance that the gospel was for the poor? Doesn't the scripture say it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom? I asked my friends in India how they did so much with so little. He said, you rich people count your dollars. We Indians give our pennies away. It's easier to give away the five cents you have than the hundred million that you have, is it not? Those of you that are nodding, do you know from personal experience? <laughs> I'm teasing. I love you very much. We've suffered together, you and I. They got to a place where their riches didn't compare with what they needed from him. They'd have brought it in wheelbarrows if they needed to. Look at verse 16. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. All their silver and gold is gone, so they're bringing their Chevys. They're bringing their Fords and their Dodges, and they're laying them at his feet. I've run out of everything that a man could value, Lord. I set all that I have at your feet, and he brought them through the year. Oh, this could make you think the church needs Tough times, not blessed times. See, these tough times illustrate the need for a Savior. They drive you to the hope of Israel, the deliverer that comes out of Zion. They will make you yearn for Messiah. Riches, plenty, blessing, comfort. All of these things have a way of dulling a man's senses until what Deuteronomy says happens, happens. My own arm has gained all of these things for me. So the living God is kind enough to put us under pressure. He's kind enough to hammer us. He's kind enough to work with us to show us our very great need for the physician. Look at the 19th verse. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. 
by us and our land in exchange for food. And we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. They've already given all of their money. Now they've given all of their livestock. And they've come to the place where they said, take my life in my land. It's no good in my hands. It would only be death. You tempted to think about Joseph in any special way? Tempted to go, Joseph's a little greedy. He's sitting on all the provision. He's not going to leave those people anything. I mean, after all, man's got a right to his own house. He's got a right to his own land. He purchased that cattle with his own money. Isn't it his? And unfortunately, this is the way the church often thinks. It's all mine, and I'll give God some. But this puts us into the heart and mind of a very Jewish Savior. He says, it's all mine, and I will let you keep some. We think we have tipped God, blessed God when we've given something to God, and you don't have anything that he hasn't given you. Look at the kind of lordship Joseph required. Verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude. Bad Joseph. Unless, of course, God wanted to bring the whole world under the control of one man, say Jesus the Christ. And then what we have is not a proud man, not an audacious man, but one who has been appointed judge of the living and the dead, one who's been given the task of bringing everything in heaven and on earth under the control of the living God. So let me ask you, saints... If there's an Egyptian walking around on his own cow, if there's an Egyptian that owns his own house or his own lands, if there's an Egyptian left who's still got silver and gold hidden, then is Joseph really his savior or is he only his partial savior? Listen to how this finishes. Here comes 23. Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crops come in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for your children and your household and your children. Verse 25, their response. You have saved our lives. When Joseph owned everything that had been theirs, when it was all in his possession, he began to give to them and said, all I want back is 20%. The other 80% you get to live on. It was clear to them that all they had was his. They saw keeping 80% as mercy. When a waitress does a good job, I mean, when they're Johnny on the spot, 
and they have brought you your Coke with its umbrella in it or whatever it is that you like. And the steak was not overcooked or undercooked. When everything comes just right, what did you tip them? Are you tipping God? Think on this for a moment. I don't want your money. It's not at all what we're talking about. Do you have a life where you love the Lord enough to give him a portion of it? Or has he swallowed up your life in his salvation? And the only thing that you own is what he's allowed you to keep. Are you hearing me tonight? See, this is lordship. Now, I'm not talking about your money. It is curious that it's the first thing he eliminated from the equation, though, isn't it? I'm talking about, well, Lord, I'd do anything for you, but I'm not going to work with them. Lord, I, I mean, your wish is my command. I, I love you. You're, you're king of kings. and You want me to what? That can't be God. No, now we're identifying the parts of your life that belong to you. And your life is essentially yours. It has not been given over to him and returned to you to go bear fruit. Why is he giving them seed, by the way? To make provision for them to advance Egypt, to protect Egypt. He's not doing it just so that they will have greedy little kingdoms of their own. See, when Jesus owns everything you have, your life stops being about your own greedy little kingdom and it starts being about how to advance all of the kingdom of God. Oh, let me see if I can find one more way to say it. Are all your eggs in his basket? Or have you reserved nine for you and one for him? Are you still making all of your own plans and asking him to bless them, doing every good thing you believe you should do, but never stopping to say, everything I do must come from you? See, the church is really deceived about what lordship is. We think lordship is calling him Lord. Understand Pharaoh called Joseph Lord before any Egyptian ever received him as Lord. When they found out he was Lord, was through a difficult process where he began to own everything they had and they had to come to him as Lord. And herein lies the real problem in America. We've never been so desperate that we would give up everything we had. But you go to Matamoros with me. You go to India with me. You go to the jungles of La Mastitia with me in Honduras. You go to valleys in Peru and you will find people who have given him everything they have. And if they get anything back, they are grateful. Call it an increase and tithe off of it. See, what I'm trying to teach us tonight is a really different attitude, a biblical attitude. If he's going to be your savior, he must be the owner of all you have. Today, we're in such a diseased state in this country that that idea is attacked as lordship preaching. They say that he is your savior by faith, whether he is your lord in reality or not. I say to hell with their preaching because it is a different gospel altogether. And they call us heretics. Maybe you've never heard of those things, and I hope you haven't. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6.
Y'all still with me tonight? You pretty sure I'm preaching to somebody else? (laughs) You knew I was in trouble when I was praising you for the giving statements earlier. I really am very proud. This church, this little bitty body of believers is a part of church plants in this country and around the world. This little bitty body of believers is stretching to all of the continents of the world except the two frozen ones. And if the Lord makes me, I'll go there too. That was a joke. I'll send Judah. The Bible says send Judah first. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And that is what some of you were, but you were washed... You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Understand something. Saved is not just saved from our sin. That's a place to start. When he washes us, we're supposed to be saved from those wicked things we were doing. But the rest of your life is a process of sanctification. See, they say, Joseph, you are the master. He says, good, bring me your money. Uh... Uh, Joseph really wouldn't want that, would he? Except he's standing right there asking for it. Very well, Joseph, here's our money. And what did they get? Provision that their money couldn't have bought. Then they say, oh, well, now he's definitely Lord. And he says, good, bring me your livestock. Uh, 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 Joseph, I mean, you already have all my money. That's a little excessive, don't you think? I'm Lord of all of you or I'm Lord of none of you. What is it that you are going to do a better job with than me, says Joseph. There was one man filled with the Spirit of God. One man so wise and discerning as to have the answers for all of Egypt. Is there more than one Savior or is there one Savior? If there's one Savior, then we need to stop deciding for ourselves what we're going to do, what we're going to keep, and what we're going to have. And we have to start asking Him. This process that he took them through was the total surrender of their lives. And you know what they were known as after that? They said, you have saved our lives. They were the redeemed. The Bible says Joseph reduced them to servitude. You know what's exceptional about being a servant of the living God? He provides for you. What would have happened if they refused their livestock? What would have happened if they refused their land or their very lives? Did you notice that right after they gave their lives, he gave them seed to see what they would do with it. And then he trusted them to bring in 20% and keep only 80. And whose seed was it? His. Everything that grew in their fields belonged to him, but he trusted them to bring back 20%. See, this is a message to us of what real lordship is. He saves you. And then he teaches you about not a partial surrender, not a 50% surrender, a total surrender of everything that you are and everything that you have. And the further you go in it, the more he begins to sow back into your life to trust you with because you've already demonstrated that it all belongs to him. What we have are a bunch of pillow prophets running around talking about prosperity and they have never surrendered even their basic instincts 
to the living God, but they're sure he wants them to be rich. It's buffoonery. What is not buffoonery is that the living God will do more with your life than you ever could have done with it. Oh, is there nobody in here that was so desperate? Nobody in here that was so broken that you can look back and see the moment that you surrendered all is the moment you began to live? Because this pastor can see it. Oh, I can see it. If you had told me I would have a wife and five children, if you had told me that we would have a ministry with our best friends, that the kind of men we would associate with in our elders and overseers would be of this quality, if you had told me that there would be 120 people that would sow into our ministry last year and that we would go to more than 20 nations... I would have said you grossly overestimated my potential. But in giving everything that I had to the Lord and doing it repetitiously over time, you know there's that initial surrender where you've given everything you know about. And then there's the day you're praying, walking around, and you see something, and you're like, "Eh, surely he didn't want that. I mean, that's not the Lord. I mean... The Lord, I I bought a SOG pocket knife in 1993. Y'all know I like pocket knives, right? Most of you know you never see me without one of some kind. This one's a zero tolerance. And uh, Steve, did it save our lives? We cut open coconuts and it saved our lives. In my family, we love these things. But the first one I ever had was a SOG And it was one of the first multi-tools. And uh, it was $85. And the problem with an $85 knife is at the time I made about $180 in a week. So it took lots of weeks of saving for it. Anything you worked for, anything that you strive for and struggle for, you value when you get. Remember this. The proverb saying inheritance quickly gained in the end is not a blessing. It's not. I didn't say it. God said it. When you work for it, strive for it, strain for it, it's a blessing. Because you think the God who gave it to you and you don't let go of it easily. And if you do have to let go of it, it's because you love something else more. So my little pocket knife, the Lord asked me to put into an offering. I'm like, you're kidding me. You can't spend this. He needs to eat. He definitely does not need my pocket knife. Have you seen how many knives that man has, Lord? It wasn't about the man. It was about lordship in my heart. Lordship in my life. Lordship when nobody is looking. Now, I can't go home and get any glory out of this to my wife. She's like, it's a stupid knife. Right? But to me, it was my most treasured possession. So what would you like to see if you gave your most treasured possession away? What would you like? Tell me the truth. Talk out loud. You gave away your your best, your most precious. What would you like to see? A little bit of gratitude. Yeah, you're looking for the next day for whatever is better because the Lord wouldn't ask you to give it up if you weren't going to get something better. That's wrong. That's way wrong. He gave up a son and he didn't get anything better for it. We're still working on getting something that is nearly close to being credited with what his son has. The man took it and went, Neat, can you believe somebody put this in the offering? What were they thinking? And he threw it in a box with about 300 other knives. 
I knew him for many years. And I used to come to his house and we'd fellowship and we'd pray and every once in a while I'd... <laughs> still there. It's still there to this day. Because the Lord is the Lord. And one of the ways he measures your love for him is in what you're willing to surrender to him. And the feeling of his affirmation and his affection when you do something that is difficult for you to do because you love him is worth 10,000 pocket knives. I've given away cars, <clears throat> given away thousands of dollars, some of them yours. Nothing was ever harder than giving away that first pocket knife. But it was a really important lesson. All of the yeah buts and, but Lord, I just saved for this. But Lord, I need it. But Lord, it's for my job. But Lord, he won't even value it. But Lord, but Lord, but Lord. We're all ways of saying, I still would like to be Lord of my pocket knife. I am its owner. I am its master. And the real truth of the gospel is, if you are Lord of something in your life, then he is not Lord of it, and therefore he is not Lord of all of your life. What we see in Genesis 47 is the progression of a total surrender and a loving God who is receiving it not because he needs it. Remember, he already had all the grain. He's receiving it because he knows if you give it to him and then he entrusts it back to you, you'll now know what to do with it. Are you hearing me, saints? Yes. I believe this year the Lord is going to put meat on the bone in this church, but we first had to learn that whatever increase comes our way, we would have to know what to do with it. Hmm? Are you all tired of seeing people get fired up for Jesus and then run off to some other state? <laughs> I'm not. I love them. I'm excited for them. That's part of our mission. But you have to know, I prayed for a lot of people in parking lots to get filled with the Holy Ghost. They ended up at, a, at another church. And uh, it was hard to watch that. The Lord knows how to make sure He's actually Lord and you're working for Him and not benefits. You're working for Him and not what you can get out of the deal. This is our time period of proving faithful. We get born again and then the process of sanctification starts. Sanctification is him setting apart your money, your livestock, your house, your land, your life, and every increase he ever gives you for him. That's what sanctification is. It is you are totally set apart for the Lord's use. How many of you like the term saints? You can't be a saint if you are not sanctified. So you show me some part of your life that doesn't belong to the Lord and I will show you where sanctification still needs to grow. It's funny. I'm a pastor. I live in this word. I hope you live in it too. But you don't know how many times we're talking and while we're talking, you are telling me the areas of your life that still belong to you. I do everything I can to restrain myself. Nobody likes answers that come too quickly. They're better when we discover them together or you discover them over time. The Lord loves you enough to turn over every stone. He does. I'm not trying to build our church coffer box here. I'm talking about total 
lordship. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. The body of Christ is not based on the partial lordship of Christ. The body of Christ does not consist of those who know of areas that are unsubmitted and refuse to do something about it. The body of Christ are those that are as obedient as they know how to be. (laughs) You, You know, you're not disobedient if you don't know that you've got something unsubmitted until he tells you you have something that's unsubmitted and then you have a choice. We go through a process of growing in him. We learn of new areas all of the time. It happens to me. I had no idea that a ministry itself could become idolatrous. That you could become so focused on what God called you to do that you could forget that that's not all he called the whole world to do. I had no idea that you could build something and then value it more than the one you built it for. But the Lord of glory loves us enough to inventory our lives with us every time we're in his presence. You get a chance to carry a cross to crucify those areas so that you can be sanctified. Here comes 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The letter is addressed to those who are in this process of setting aside everything they have is his. When you stagnate this process, you effectively start to slowly eliminate yourself from the body of Christ. Now, these days, people don't say that. It used to be that if Nolan showed up here from another town, he showed up with a letter from his pastor. We called it moving your letter. And that letter said something about his life. It said where he was at in his spiritual journey, what I should look for and what I should hold him accountable to, that one man of God was letting another man of God know so that they could properly pastor him. And you didn't avoid accountability simply by changing towns. Later, that simply became a formality. It was just a stock letter. And then later, there was no letter at all. It was just an expression. And then eventually we dropped even the expression altogether. So now we have a a migratory flock that says I can serve God anywhere and I'm accountable to no one. Where is it getting us? A divorce rate as high as the world's. Carnality like we've never seen. Friends, if you can divorce a wife in this church and run to another church and marry a new one and just carry on like nothing's ever changed then church discipline in the Bible itself is kind of a joke, isn't it? I don't think in the kingdom of God it's a joke. I think maybe in Christendom it's a joke, but not in the body of Christ. I believe the Lord is watching very carefully how we handle all such matters. And I want to get it right. I don't want to leave any stone unturned. The church at Corinth had problems, didn't it? I mean, what kind of problems? Some of them were sleeping with prostitutes. Some of them were in lawsuits. Some of them were getting drunk at the communion. Did they have problems? I mean, every once in a while I read the Corinthian letter when I'm discouraged about my counseling schedule. I'm like, yeah, you got me there, Paul. Hadn't seen this one yet. Or at least they haven't told me that it happened yet. 
And he still calls them sanctified. Why? Because they were somewhere in the process. I'm not telling you tonight that if it's not perfected, you're not in Christ. I'm saying if you're not engaging in the process, if you're not inviting the scrutiny of the Holy Ghost so that you can ever become more obedient, ever go further, ever make Him more and more and more Lord, there is a problem. See, in today's name it and claim it society, where we're sealed and saved with a prayer that you didn't even have to mean as long as you can quote Romans 10, 9, and 10. We have no process. We have no journey. We simply declare ourselves victors at the end of the race the moment we pray the prayer. I say that there is still a process intact that took men like John Wesley two decades to figure out. Read his writings and you'll find it out. David Brannard, how long did it take him, Michael? I mean... Years. I, I hate to even read his diary. It depresses me. Because I would like to think of myself as having obtained more and more quickly. I know you're different than that. But he agonized through the process of sanctification. Guys, sanctification ends in holiness. And without holiness, no one sees the Lord. Turn back with me to Genesis 41. Do y'all need encouragement sometimes? You do? You need a little encouragement sometimes. Then somebody say, Pastor, you're preaching a good word. All right, now here comes your encouragement. If we can all live this word together in the end, we'll be more holy, he'll be more glorified, and the things we do he can actually bless because he will have ordered them. Amen? That's what we want. Nobody wants to waste our lives like men beating at the air. None of us want to determine our priorities and then find out that our priorities were completely different than God's. In fact, He surrounded you by a body in the hopes that you would listen to your brothers and sisters. Actually, that's not quite right. He surrounded you by a body with leaders in the body that He anointed to teach you. And if you won't listen to them, then He hopes you listen to your brothers and sisters. Let's not make the same mistake over and over and over. Let's not be ever hearing and never perceiving. Let's be bold enough to say, you know, this is obviously a problem in my life. And the Lord's trying to own this one too. You'll never meet anybody who tries to own your problems other than the Lord. You'll meet men who try to own your successes, but never your problems. He wants to take credit for them and then remove them from you. Come on now. Here comes Genesis 41. Look at verse 46. Ah, let's start in 44. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonoth Paneah, savior of the world, and gave him Asenoth, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went on throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all of the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the field surrounding it. Joseph 
Stored up. Somebody say that. Stored up. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Then why did he need anything during the famine? You see, God doesn't need your stuff. You need to surrender it to him so that he can be your savior. He already had more than the sand on the seashore. He didn't need what they had. They needed to give up what they had. So he was pleased to give it back to them once they had. Are you hearing me? He doesn't need what you have. The God of God and lords of lords is not interested in 10% of whatever you make. Do you think that he's a God to be bribed? He doesn't need it. You need to learn to surrender it. Because in that surrender, we are pronouncing him Lord in the most efficient way we know how. We're taking what we really value more than anything else and putting it at his feet. And if money is not your thing, it started with money. It moved from there to livestock. If you had to give your dog tomorrow for the Lord, little Sophie, right? You got a wiener dog, you're in trouble. If she hasn't turned over the trash or eaten your socks or prepared to kiss you by eating earthworms or something like that, on the best day, how hard would it be to give away Sophie? Oh, look, they're going to cry now. And I understand. I take Weenie to work with me. He's here right now, two doors over. (laughs) But if he doesn't belong to the Lord, then I have found an idol. It's easy to say things belong to the Lord till we start talking about having to do something with them. Hmm? He doesn't need it. We need to learn to do this. And in learning to do it, we are being sanctified more and more and more. That's the point. Now, what did Joseph do? He stored up. I want to tell you that the Lord is not interested in taking from you. He's interested in you storing up. Let's look at Luke 6. Could you put Luke 6.45 on the screen? The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. The living God wants you to surrender everything in your life, everything that has ever shaped your heart, everything that your heart is attached to, to his feet, so that he can begin to send you back things to store up in your heart and you bring out for his use. Until a heart has been crushed in his presence, until it's been emptied of everything it values, then how can you know what you're sharing really came from the Lord? I know what it is to be crushed and deflated. I know what it is to be broken and contrite. The leaders that I've surrounded myself with know their share of pain and loss. And then when God on the other side of that deposits a joy in them, then they can share the joy 
with you that they themselves received from the Lord, not a joy that originated in their own hearts. Do you understand the value in brokenness and surrender then? What you have to offer came from the Lord and not out of an inherently evil heart with window dressing to look good. The Lord is not cruel. He's only asking us to surrender in a way that allows room for him to fill us with what he desires for us to have. Oh man, if we could ever buy into this idea. If we could ever free ourselves from fear or greed. If we could ever truly surrender in every area he brings to us, then you would never be without good things to give to people. Said, so, but if I gave my money away, I wouldn't have the money they need from me. Maybe you need to learn that they didn't need money from you. Maybe the problem is you have thought you were the Savior for them. And instead, he's trying to teach you how to give them what they really need. See, one of the problems with any serious bunch of Christians is we get little Messiah complexes. Because we work for the Messiah, we think every problem out there should be solved by us. And we take a little census of our own storehouses to see what it is we have to give. Instead of being in a broken place where whatever the Lord gives us is all we would have to give, we have a neat little storeroom of our own resources back there somewhere. It's how something like the Salvation Army ends up a humanitarian organization. It's how the Red Cross ends up where they are. And some, even in this body, are fast on their way because you do the good that you want to do instead of what God has told you. And do it consistently. Do it over seven, eight years. I don't want to beat up on anybody. There's nobody in here that's not motivated by godly good things. And yet, the sacrifices that God honors are a broken and contrite heart. What he's looking for from us are not dollar amounts. They're broken fields that he can pour something into. And then what comes out didn't come from our strength. It was given out of our weakness and his strength. Oh, man. You know, the greatest offering I've ever received. Can I tell you about that or will it embarrass us? I know what it is to receive $500. I know what it is to receive 1000 This ministry one time received 50000 And that's not the greatest offering we ever had. We were ministering in Matamoros, Mexico. And a woman whose baby had gotten healed the year before when we prayed for her brought us a seahorse. She had to go out and find it in the ocean. It was treasured and it's all she had. I didn't want to take it because I'm proud, fleshly and full of all kind of yuckiness. I thought, I have so much, she has so little, how could I take a seahorse from her? She wasn't giving it to me. She was giving her most precious possession to the Lord of glory. And how dare I refuse him total lordship of her life. What do you do with something like that when someone gives it to you? I mean, have you ever thought of it? Jennifer and I received an offering at our table in Lafayette. That was the first time anybody ever tithed to us. They left, and we sat and stared. 
looked at her, she looked at me. We, looked, we didn't touch it for about four days. Now, <coughs> it's not so hard now. We have to eat. But then I had a job. What do I do with this? It's the Lord's money. And I really did. I struggled with it for four or five days. One morning I got out of bed and I came and got on my knees by these old nasty green couches we bought at a garage sale. She said they were beautiful. And I knelt by that couch and I put my hands on my head and the Lord spoke to me and said, it's all mine. That's not mine. It's all mine. And I realized that the $35 or whatever it was sitting on our kitchen table was not any different than the several thousand sitting in my bank account. It was the Lord's. But I viewed it differently because that felt like the Lord's and the rest felt like mine. Are you hearing me tonight? Okay, I'm going to let the Holy Ghost finish that message. Turn with me to Colossians. I want you to hear about the storehouses of heaven. I want you to, I preached to you earlier about Zaphonoth Panea, about the total surrender of Egypt to its master. Now I'm trying to share with you about Joseph's storehouse. Colossians 1 and verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. And all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. We're not limited to what he has stored up in our hearts. Because he has a storehouse in the heavens. After you have given your all and you are empty and there's nothing to be given you. And he deposits in you something heavenly. He shakes you one more time to go out and do war with the Philistines. He gives you revenge for your two eyes and you do some mighty act for the Lord. And you throw your jawbone away. You feel empty. But then there is a storehouse in heaven. He said it here. He said that in that storehouse, hope and faith were springing from it. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. He has an unlimited supply of all that you would need. And he's willing to put it all at your disposal. One act of lordship at a time. Have you ever been wondered why you were entrusted with... Uh, let me talk to the older guys in here. At 60 years old, at 50 years old, do you have more now than you had when you were 18? One of you? Why? Oh, it's because you're stronger now. It's because you're better looking now. It's because your mental acuity has never been sharper. Why? Because you've proven trustworthy. That's why. 
You don't give an 18-year-old what a 70-year-old manages because he's not prepared for it. But in Christ, we want it all and we want it now. And he's looking at you saying, I want it all. And I want it now. And I will entrust you with what I think you should have when I think you should have it. Oh, man, it is, Cass. It's good. I don't know what... Look, I'm preaching better than you're responding, but that's okay. <laughs> that means it's time to close. That's what it means. Turn with me to Genesis 45. Yeah. Pastor P. wrote, when you're preaching your heart out, and the people have give out all they got, it's time to pick up the sword next week. Here comes Genesis 45. We will close with this. Verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Is that pretty good? Yeah. I would say that's pretty darn good. That for, for one man's life's work, I would say that's all right. Here comes verse 8. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of Egypt. Eric, why on earth are you closing with that? That's an odd scripture. I want to close with a perspective on lordship, sanctification, and being entrusted. How did Joseph get where he was? Well, he was rejected by his family, but he gave it over to the Lord. He endured Potiphar's house, but he gave it over to the Lord. He was denied the reputation that he fought for when Potiphar's wife did what she did, but he gave it over to the Lord. He gave good prophecies and bad prophecies faithfully while he was in prison, and he was mistreated for both, but he gave it over to the Lord. He knew what it was to be forgotten, but he gave that hurt over to the Lord. He knew how hard it was to forgive his brothers, but he gave it over to the Lord. He now knew what it was to be in God's providence, but he knew it came from the Lord. He was now fit to rule. Joseph was 17 when he was called. He was 30 when he entered the service of Pharaoh. He went through seven good years, is two years into the bad in this chapter. 17. 30, 7, and 2. He's 39 years old, and he has been proving faithful for 22 years. It took 22 years of surrender to be entrusted with the authority that he had. Maybe you're not where you need to be today. Maybe you feel like you're in the bottom of a hole. But if you give your hole over to the Lord, if you give your deepest pit over to the Lord, maybe... You're stuck in Potiphar's house. But if you give your situation over to the Lord and let go of ownership, where can you end up? Lordship is the answer to all real blessings. It is. This is not a message to increase the coffer boxes of life-changing ministries. You know me. You know my heart. You know the men we're submitted to. If you give more, so will I. That's how this works. I don't want one dime more than it takes me to sustain the lives that we have. The rest is for moving the gospel. Amen. 
I'm not trying to get your money. I simply know that if the Lord owns all of you, then he can entrust you with more and more and more. That what's stored up in heaven gets put at your disposal. And I know that those are the people I want to be surrounded by. Could you stand to your feet?